The Bowery Boys, episode 171, The Keys to Gramercy Park. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use offer code BOWERY. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Gramercy Park is our destination for this particular episode. It's almost like a pocket neighborhood tucked away from the busy avenues. It's interesting, Greg, that you just called it a neighborhood. For, yes, it is a neighborhood. It's also a square. It's a park itself. It also refers to the homes, the elegant mansions that are lining the park and the entire neighborhood. Now, you and I, Tom, and most of our listeners won't get to appreciate Gramercy as an actual park because, of course, it is a private park. We will explain more specifically what that means, but a few months ago, we did a podcast on Tompkins Square Park, which is an open park that was designed for the masses and you know built for working class immigrants to appreciate. I would say that this park is, in many ways, its opposite. Which is ironic because a lot of the philosophy behind the construction of the park and behind the big developer of the park, whose biography we'll get into in a minute, is all about the, the benefits of these open spaces and of bringing nature into urban life. Yet for so many, they can only see it from the outside of an iron fence. Now, as this park is kind of off limits to most people, we have chosen to focus on the surrounding neighborhood, the history of the people who lived here, specifically those historic structures that are intimately clustered about the park. So these people, then I take it, are the keys that you're referring to, to understanding Gramercy Park. Indeed. And we're not talking just a bunch of old families. We're talking inventors, writers, mayors, even presidents. So join us as we take a stroll around Gramercy Park. Tom, please situate the park here, Gramercy Park, because it it's not on a busy thoroughfare. So, you know, no. a lot of people who work around this area main, very seldomly walk past it. Right. The park is located between Park Avenue and 3rd Avenue and 20th and 21st Street. The park, however, doesn't take up that entire area. That is not all parkland. The it's, park, on, it's on a block long. No, the park itself is centered between those two blocks, between 3rd and Park 
And there's Lexington Avenue that basically starts from the northern edge of the park and continues northward. And there's Irving Place, which starts at the southern end of the park and continues down to 14th Street. It really does look like a park that was tucked into the middle of a block, if you were to look at it from, you know, from a bird's eye view. Well, if that bird had been eyeing it just 200 years ago, Greg, let's say, let's rewind, shall we, Mm -hmm. to 1814. Sure. The bird would have seen basically a swamp. This would have been swampland, (laughs) like so many other great rarefied spots in New York City. If we dial back a couple hundred years, you've got a swamp. In this case, it was a crooked swamp, even a, quote, Little Crooked Swamp. Do you know how you say Little Crooked Swamp, Greg, in Dutch? <laughs> it's It escapes me. Uh, please uh, refresh my memory. <laughs> it's it's two words. Krammarese. Well, I mean, I, that's probably really bad Dutch. And this would be this would be bastardized down into Krammarese, which would just turn into Gramercy. So the name Gramercy actually comes from this weird distortion of the original Dutch word. I always thought it was a, like an English word. Well, I think that it's also an old English word for many thanks. Mm-hmm. And it sounds so refined, right? Gramercy. Yes. But we trace it back to Little Crooked Swamp. And it was crooked because it, the brook itself started at Madison Square, about where Madison Square is. I mean, it didn't exist at the time, but where today's Madison Square is. And it made its way to the East River, hitting the East River at about 18th Street. So it was crooked, kind of went you mm-hmm. know down a little bit. So essentially, this was all farmland with this, you know, with an outcropping of swampy land and brooks. brooks right. right. Well, early on, the land was owned by the Stuyvesant family, and who we discussed in the St. Marks and the Bowery show, because they owned, the Stuyvesant family owned so much land here that would become the East Village, and become the Gramercy area. This particular area around today's park was sold in 1761 to New York's first post-revolutionary mayor, a man named James Duane. He served as mayor for six years. So he built this little farm there, and he called it Gramercy Farm. So Mayor James had a son named James. James Jr. James Jr. sold this property in 1831 to Samuel Ruggles. Now, do you remember, does this, does this name Samuel Ruggles ring a bell from another show? Sure, he is responsible for a few early New York City parks, including Union Square, mm-hmm. as of where we brought him up before. Right, that was where we last talked about him in great detail, but he's even more so responsible for all of the development around the parks, because he made a lot of money off of real estate. He was one of New York's first big developers. You know, John Jacob Astor owned more land. He was referred to as New York's landlord. But Samuel Ruggles was a man who saw the possibility of developing large tracts of land into residential lots that he would then sell off. And he had an inn. He married Mary Rosalie Rathbone, who was from the Rathbone, very well-off, very connected to the old New York families. So th- this brought him into contact with people like the Duanes, like, you know, the descendants of the Stuyvesants. They had these giant tracts of lands with swamps on them, with things like that. You would have to grade the land. You'd have to take out a lot of dirt to bring it down to the level of the streets. I imagine it wasn't easy to visualize looking at a farm and thinking, well, we can turn this into a replica of a London neighborhood, for R- instance. Right. And it's good that you bring up the London neighborhoods because there's a developer in London named Cubit. But Cubert? Cubit. Cubit. Wait, so he was a developer whose name was a 
a length of measure. That's really convenient. It it, it came in handy. He uh, he developed lots of residential neighborhoods in London, like Belgravia. These big squares. He would take a big tract of land, plant a beautiful park in the center, and then develop the homes around it and sell sell them off, which was a very profitable business. So New York was starting to get into this game as well. And Samuel Ruggles, by this point, in 1831, had quit law just to focus on real estate. So he had money because of his wealthy betrothal, mm-hmm. and he had connections to all these people with money who wanted to move to nicer places in the northern areas of New York. And who wanted to make money off of the land that they owned, but they didn't necessarily want to have to figure out how to do it themselves. So he sort of invented this position of being an American developer. But he was developing more than one place, not just Gramercy. He had done Union. and he had Union Place, place. which was called Union Place in 1815, had been an old potter's field, became this park. And in 1832, he had the city enlarge the park, and he bought all the land around it, as much as he could, and built himself a really nice place to live. That was happening concurrently with the Gramercy Park development. And that was also a fenced-in park, but in contrast, that was a public park. Right. It was open, the city was in charge of it. So then what was his basic idea with Gramercy Park? What made that different than Union and maybe some of these other things that were happening? His idea was to subdivide that block between 20th and 21st to parcel it up into 66 privately owned lots that went around a square in the center, which would be a fenced-in private park. Number one Gramercy Park would be in the northwest corner, and it would just move counterclockwise. The numbers would advance counterclockwise around the park. The park itself, the fenced-off park, would be deeded over to the property owners, whoever bought those lots around it, and they would pay an annual assessment for the upkeep of the park. So the idea was the city would never have to pay a dime for the upkeep of the park. It would be owned by every single person who lived around the park. And furthermore, he asked for tax-exempt status for the park. So they, they wouldn't be taxed on the park. And this was, I think, kind of a coup of Ruggles that also shows that he had great connections at the time. He suggested, remember, that the city hadn't really moved this far up, Mm -hmm. and he suggested that by building this beautiful park, it would lure in the city's wealthy, who would buy the land parcels around the park and build beautiful mansions there that would drive up the land value. So that would then increase the tax base. So he was saying it was in the financial interest of the city to Mm. grant him this tax-exempt status for this park. But I think it's interesting to note that he saw this as a public good. Right. And he had a whole lot of backers, a lot of people who thought that he was a visionary because he was embracing public space in a way that was totally uncommon. So here is the point of view that Gramercy does the entire city a service by offering something beautiful to look at, even if you're not able to go in it. It somehow (laughs) elevates your mood. It, It serves a public good just by its own existence. Well, and that's certainly a justification that's sometimes even used today um, mm-hmm. when you have a new development that, of course, individually benefits a lot of people of great wealth, but with an underlying philosophy that, well, the neighborhood around it will improve uh, because of the introduction of these folks. So the debate continues. 
as a resident, then, how would you access this park that was, you know, planted right here in the middle of a block? Well, that's a very good question, because obviously you could take 3rd Avenue or 4th Avenue, which would become park. But Ruggles did see early on in the planning process that it would be nice if there was easier access to get to the park, another artery to bring people up to the park. So if you look at the early plans of the park, you'll see the 66 lots completely surrounding the park. Mm -hmm. Ruggles was willing to sacrifice six of those lots in order to create two new approaches to the park that would be drilled in and become new roads between 3rd and 4th Avenue. So on the southern side of the park, that would become Irving Place, and that was named after his friend Washington Irving, the great author. And the northern approach would be Lexington Avenue, which was named after the Battle of Lexington and Concord, which was the first major battle of the Revolutionary War. Well, how on earth did he get the city to agree to create two new streets, essentially? Well, first of all, there wasn't that much going on between 3rd and 4th Avenue at the time. His whole point of Gramercy was to bring people up there and to spur development. So we think of Lexington as this indispensable avenue today that's you know lined with great office towers. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it was like farmland and fields before and crooked <laughs> brooks. Well, through his connections um, and through proper lobbying, he got approval in the state legislature and he drilled in the, the new avenues. He would spend $180,000 on draining the swamp and filling it in with tons of dirt, moving dirt around. A million horse carts, Greg, of of (laughs) dirt would be moved around to to bring it down to level and to to make it habitable. And in 1832, the, the park itself would be lined with an iron fence. This gambit of Ruggles would, in fact, prove to be... A wild success, as all the lots were soon sold to, of course, the the fashionable New Yorkers who wanted the newest, most genteel area to live. It also helped that, you know, society was making its rush up Fifth Avenue and up Broadway. And so here was Gramercy Park, which was just close enough to all the action, but still a little far away and still tucked away. It was, of course, the great heads of fashionable society like the Stuyvesants, the Rhinelanders, and the Vanderbilts. And even, of course, later, the Steinways would live here as well. But to me, what's more interesting are some of the inventors and the engineers and the politicians and entertainers that would live around the park. Let me give you a rundown of some of my faves who lived around Gramercy Park. Perhaps one of the original kings of Gramercy Park was the inventor and city leader, Peter Cooper. If you want to go back into our back catalog, I have a show, episode 30, just on this particular man and the institution that he would be later the benefactor of, Cooper Union. So he was one of the first early prominent residents encouraged to live here by Ruggles himself, who brought him to this neighborhood. Now, but he did not live on the park itself. No. In 1850, he actually built a house at 9 Lexington Avenue, so just a block up from the park. It had 35 rooms, not only for Cooper's own family, but for that of his daughter and son-in-law, Abram Hewitt. So it was kind of the Cooper Hewitt household. Right. Cooper was, of course, a early 19th century inventor, and so later inventors would often go to him for advice and to to try out some of these new items that they had just made. So in the parlor, he would entertain the likes of Samuel Morse, who laid the groundwork for, of course, the telegraph. Uh, Thomas Edison would come by with his phonograph records. And what I also liked is not they not only had to 
gain the favor of Peter Cooper, but of Cooper's grandchildren. For if if Peter saw that his grandchildren were interacting with these devices, he thought that well, there's certainly a future for these. So Edison wow. Edison came over with his phonograph record, and they would play around with that, recording the, their children's voices. Alexander Graham Bell came over with a prototype of a telephone and gave that to his children to play around with. And would Cooper actually buy any of these inventions? Was he lending money or financial backing? He would lend a lot of money to a lot of these inventors. In fact, he would give a great deal of money to the inventor who would be moving in next door. There are two twin mansions that were then built just to the south of his, so they would be on the north side of Gramercy Park here. They would be built by the brothers David and Cyrus Fields, built in the 1850s. They lived here at the corner for almost 40 years. Now, with Samuel Morse's advice and some of Peter Cooper's money, Cyrus Field helped create the transatlantic cable, which allowed telegraph communication between America and Europe, one of the greatest inventions of the 19th century. The birth of that idea is believed to have been right here at this corner in Fields Mansion. And there are you know, lots of paintings that depict the moment of that agreement, of that idea. And when were these these twin mansions built? Mm-hmm. In the 1850s. Okay, so when, when they fenced in the park in 1832, there was basically no development here. Now we're roughly 20 years later, and we've got mansions popping up. The, ha- the mansions are popping up at full force in all the townhouses around here by this time. I mean, flurry of activity by this time. Some activity that was not predicted occurred in July of 1863. You know, still a starkly new park here came the violence and the tumults of the Civil War draft riots. Gramercy Park's actually near the center of all of the violence. The Second Avenue Armory, where several people died and was basically stormed and all of the ammunition and guns were stolen. That's just two blocks over. It was 21st and 2nd Avenue. So very close. As a result, here in Gramercy Park, they opened the gates, and a regiment was actually stationed here to both protect the park, but then, you know, to... To protect probably the prominent families who are surrounding Mm -hmm. the park. Absolutely. Now, from the autobiography of the great sculptor Augustus St. Gaudens, from his autobiography, quote, Later on, as the storm lessened, it was strange to see two cannons posted on 21st Street at the northeast corner of Gramercy Park, pointing due east in the direction of the rioters, unquote. Now, since I'm mentioning autobiographies here, I would be remiss if I forgot another gentleman by the name of George Templeton Strong. If you have ever watched a Ken Burns documentary, you may be familiar with George's name. For this is the man who goes down. He is always called New York's greatest diarist. Now, although he was also a prominent lawyer, I think that's how he knew Samuel. He is known today, he's almost renowned because he kept this diary for most of his life from the 1830s until the end of his life in 1875. Well, hold on a second. But that's how he knew Samuel. He also married Samuel's daughter. Right. Well, so then by marrying... Samuel Ruggles, we're talking about. Yes. Samuel's daughter, Ellen... They married and then promptly moved to the north side of Gramercy Park. In 1865, 
Mr. Strong and Ellen hosted a grand dinner here that was in the honor of General Ulysses S. Grant. So it all just sounds so genteel, lovely, very charming around this elect community around Gramercy Park. But there have been a couple times when the rest of New York attempted to intercede onto this little area. How dare they? The thought of having Lexington Avenue and Irving Place as arteries into the park, well, the, that's almost been too good to be true. For oh, the, people have been tempted to actually combine those. Yeah. To so, join them together. At, well, in 1890, there was a plan that was hatched that would have run a streetcar down Lexington Avenue to connect with Irving Place, not to run through the park, but to run underneath the park. Oh. So, But still would have created so much crazy traffic the the peacefulness of gramercy would have been eliminated so but that project went to the wayside so the park received its first permanent resident in 1918 with the statue of the great thespian edwin booth the brother of john wilkes booth but of course one of the greatest actors who ever lived we will get more into booth here in a little bit or you will tom yes we'll um, get into the booth but when they moved him in he they displaced the old fountain that sat there so they had to move that over to the side so the centerpiece of the park and you can see him standing there in a dramatic fashion is edwin booth and he's the only resident who doesn't require a key Speaking <laughs> of true. which, yeah. can we just talk about the keys for yes, a second? Yeah. So, so how did people get into the park in the 19th century? Well, the same way that they get into the park today. They have a key. Every lot that surrounds the park pays an annual assessment. Recently, that was $7,500 per, uh, per lot per year. That covers the upkeep of the park. And along with that, when you pay your dues, you get two keys to the park. Mm. You can buy additional keys, but they cost, you know, hundreds of dollars each. So you don't want to do that. You don't want to lose a key, a replacement cost, oh, sure, like a I'm tremendous sure. amount. And the keys are changed every year. So you better stay current. Well, sounds like we could just sneak in. Well, in fact, this past weekend, I was just kind of hanging out on Gramercy Park South watching people, you know, show up with their keys on Sunday morning, a cup of coffee and newspaper, and they were just taking a stroll in the park. And I did see uh, some flagrant violations of park policy. I saw some <laughs> some people sneak in when the door was just ajar. I'm sure some, some ears right now will find that scandalous. Mm. Well, however, these trespassers had it coming to them because what they didn't realize is that they also need a key to get out so then it became a sort of public shaming, if you will, mm -hmm. when they when they tried to get back out onto um, the public sidewalk and they, they had to wait inside for somebody with a key to let them out. No way out unless you're climbing a tree. So let that be a lesson. Now, I have to back up here. For in the late 19th century, the character changed a little bit as some of these old townhouses were torn down because, of course, those residents were now living further up Fifth Avenue and in other places. And they were being replaced by apartments buildings and even some early office buildings around the area. Despite that, there were still very notable people that lived around here. It took on perhaps even a slightly more bohemian quality. I mean, there were certainly more writers and artists that lived around at this time. So the neighborhood's going through some curious changes, although physically it's still looking right around the same. And that's partially due as well to the neighborhood being classified um, as a historic district in 1966. So there are great limitations today on changes to the exterior of these buildings. 
they've tried to maintain the elegance of the square immediately, even if the surrounding streets, especially by the 1960s and 1970s, began to deteriorate a little. One rather unfortunate event that happened in 1989 when a steam pipe burst under Gramercy Park South, which killed three people, displaced hundreds from their homes here, and then belched dirty steam for several hours throughout the whole neighborhood so that the entire square was a filthy mess and had to be cleaned up. Now, the park you see today is almost identical to what you may have seen even 50 or 60 years ago. And of course, some parts are identical to the beginnings of the park. Well, this sounds kind of like we're wrapping up the podcast, but we're not. No, for that is an overview history. That was, again, over the park. We're now... Oh, bird's eye. The bird's eye. For in our second half, we are going to take you around the park with a little walking tour that you can actually use on a nice afternoon. And we'll start our stroll after the commercial break. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. And now, back to the show. Gramercy Park. The words were to me almost like those first uttered by an infant, so familiar 
so compelling had they been from my life's beginning. There was a picture of me in my baby carriage snapped by some itinerant photographer as I was wheeled to the park by my Irish nurse, Margaret, erect and stern in her tight-fitting bodice and full white apron. Another picture showed us inside the park on a stretch of lawn close to the dogwood tree, and here Margaret, her mood more relaxed, is seen stooping down, arms outstretched, to receive my tottering first steps. Wow, Greg, I didn't, I didn't realize you had a nursemaid named Margaret. <laughs> it was, in fact, not me that had the nursemaid. I'm reading from a precious book from the 1950s called Gramercy Park Memories of a New York Girlhood, written by Gladys Brooks. Now, Gladys was the wife of noted literary critic Van Wyck Brooks. So that's a, a good way to introduce, to put, your, to put us in the mindset of what the park might have been like in the 19th century as we begin our tour starting at the Northwest Corner. So the numbers start in the Northwest Corner with number one, Gramercy Park. We're, should we maybe stand with our backs to the fence? Yes. Since we can't get in anyway. Just... <laughs> Don't even look at the park. Let's look right at these buildings. For along the west side is actually the oldest collection of houses in the entire neighborhood, I believe. They were built between 1844 and 1850 almost untouched and strangely unified. They kind of look like one big gelatinous townhouse here Mm -hmm. um, and very beautiful five-story homes. One Gramercy Park, so the one at the corner, which was built in 1849, so 165 years ago, is best known for its very first resident, Dr. Valentine Mott. This house is actually sometimes called the old Mott House. Dr. Mott was New York's most prominent doctor, was one of the greatest surgeons that worked at Bellevue Hospital. As legend would have it, Dr. Mott performed more successful operations than any doctor who ever lived during his time period. It's also said that he, had, that he performed more than 1,000 amputations in his lifetime. He had an exceptionally large family that all lived in this five-story building, nine children. So you can imagine being one of the first homes here that having nine children spill out of the door every day would have uniquely affected the character of the neighborhood early on. They were a motley group. (laughs) Truly motley. Now, a couple doors over at 3 Gramercy Park, this was once the home of a very interesting private club called the Netherland Club of New York, which was exclusive only to those New Yorkers who could trace their lineage all the way back to the days of Dutch New Amsterdam. Now, this group still exists. It's in another location today. But if your family qualifies, I think you should... Check them out. Go give them a call. If your family qualifies, you probably already know about it. (laughs) True. Good point. But perhaps the most interesting house here along the west side of Gramercy Park is for Gramercy Park. You'll notice two very prominent lampposts that are standing here. They're beautiful, yeah. Now, back in the early days of even New Amsterdam, in those Dutch days, there would be lamp lighters that would follow the leader of the town back home. And when those lamps were lit in front of his house, it would mean that the mayor was home, that's where he was for emergencies, and you were to also leave him alone. So they they were following the mayor's. Right. Well, th- at the time, in the Dutch period, they were burgers. But that Following tradi- the burgers. Following the burgers. Now I just have an Alka-Seltzer <laughs> following the burgers. 
But in the 19th, by the 19th century, um, this custom followed the actual mayors of New York. And so these, these lamp posts, which were often, you know, now lit with gas, were placed in front of the mayor's house. So there must be a mayor here that lived here. That man's name was James Harper. Now, he did not live in this house while he was mayor, but moved here promptly after his term ended in 1844. Harper is very notable in the history of publishing, in the history of the American letters, for he and his brothers opened a publishing house, which is the roots of today's major book publisher, Harper Collins. not to mention, of course, the magazines that derived from that Harper's Bazaar and Harper's Magazine. If I might just throw in a tale of, of Harper, mm-hmm. he was an early publisher, like you said, his brothers started a shop with him, and they were doing hand printing back in the early 1800s. And they also experimented with new technology. So they were one of the first shops to use a horse to power the printing presses. Mm. So they had a horse walking around a pole all day, and it would get a break at noon and 6 p.m., but otherwise it was walking around in a circle, and that motion was turning a rod, which would then power the printing presses, thus speeding things up. Well, I mean, you could pony up more papers that way, I guess. (laughs) Indeed you could. But hold on, it gets better. Oh, okay. At the end of his long life, this, this horse was finally retired to the Harper family farm outside the city. And, you know, I think that this was a really nice gesture, especially back in the day, not to just, like, turn him into glue, but to set him out to pasture. <laughs> and they hooked him up to a tree to enjoy his retirement. And do you know what the horse did? Walk around and around and around and around <laughs> oh. the tree and stop at noon and 6 p.m. I don't... I- I don't mean to take the luster off of the the glint of nostalgia here and and his generosity, but when he was mayor, he actually swept into office, Harper, on a wave of anti-Irish nativist fervor. In fact, some of the publications in the early years of Harper's book were actually books that were negative towards the Irish and negative towards this big swell of immigration. On a happier note, however... Mr. Harper also saw the completion of the Croton Reservoir during his mayoral term. Um, You know, that Egyptian-like container of water that was located around today's Bryant Park in the New York Public Library today. Fast forward to 1899, and Harper's widow, Julia, still lived here at 4 Gramercy Park, And that's when they were tearing down the Croton Reservoir so that they could eventually build the New York Public Library. She was uniquely allowed to go up to the reservoir and take decorative features off of it for her own personal possession, which she then took from the reservoir and decorated her home here at Fort Gramercy Park. Anything on the exterior we can see? Nothing from the reservoir of Though, of course, you will note, of course, those beautiful iron porch that has a certain southern quality to it. Right. It seems almost like New Orleans. Mm -hmm. All right. Can we make our way around the corner? So keep keep moving, dialing around counterclockwise. We're on the south side. And we're going to skip a couple buildings. I mean, they're, they're lovely and all, but let's make our way to number 15 Gramercy Park to the National Arts Club. This formidable Victorian Gothic mansion had been two houses built in the 1840s. Then along came Samuel Tilden, who's a very important man in New York history. He was a governor, the 25th of New York State, and a presidential candidate. In the 1870s, Tilden hired Calvert Vox, the famed Central Park architect, to undertake the job of renovating and uniting these two 
mansions into one gorgeous, sumptuous house. It's notable for, among other things, its stone-arched windows, and if you look closely, you could perhaps spot the heads of famous authors and the stonework surrounding the windows. You know, I think it's important to add here that Tilden really did almost become the president of the United States. It was basically an electoral snafu. Um, that he did not become the president. Had that happened, this would have been a presidential mansion and would have completely changed the whole nature of the neighborhood for all time. So here lives Tilden. Meanwhile, in 1898, in a mansion on 34th Street, the New York Times literary critic Charles Decay had created a club at a time when there was great excitement all over the world in these kind of new, sophisticated clubs, mostly men's clubs. So, so he went about creating the club called the National Arts Club in 1898, and membership was swelling to a point where in 1906 it had outgrown its 34th Street spot. And Tilden's house, in the meantime, his mansion, had come on to the market, and they managed to swoop it up and, and move on in. Its membership over the years has included a real who's who of American artists, and it should be noted that these American artists have also included women from the very beginning. So unlike oh, other clubs, mm-hmm. even the players next door, the, this has been a co-ed organization since its founding. The mission of the National Arts Club, according to its website, is to, quote, stimulate, foster, and promote public interest in the arts and educate the American people in the fine arts. How, in, how refined indeed. Uh, it's... I guess, still going strong today? It is still active. Um, There has been slight controversy as of late, uh, not to sully its image or anything, but in 2012, New York State Attorney General Eric Schneiderman did charge the club's longtime director, O. Alden James, and his twin brother, John, of misusing club funds to pay and fund a rather opulent lifestyle. It's a wild tale. We won't go into it now. There are a lot of articles written about this. They've moved on to new directors of of the club, so hopefully the club is recovering. But there was a lot of drama, which is sort of ironic because we thought the drama was happening next door in the Players Club, which is, in fact, just next door at 16 Gramercy Park South. And it's a club that is dedicated to a celebration of new dramatic arts. This lovely building was constructed in 1845 in the Gothic Revival style, and it was lived in by a Valentine G. Hall. So another Valentine (laughs) at Gramercy Park. I love it. Roughly 40 years later, in 1888, the building was purchased by Edwin Booth, who was, as you said, was one of the most successful actors of all time in America. He was certainly one of the most famous in the 19th century, He was still haunted a bit by his association with his brother, obviously, who who had killed President Lincoln 20 years before. He would hire Stanford White, who also was a resident of the park, to add a lot of flourishes to it. And since its opening in 1888, it has had the singular mission to celebrate the theater, people of the theater, actors, playwrights, and bring these people into contact with business people, and also celebrated people of society. One might very often, for instance, see Mark Twain inhabiting the Players Club and wandering around Gramercy Park. He often loved drinking and playing pool. 
at the Players Club. Indeed. You can still play billiards in the billiard lounge. You could take a meal in the dining room, which, by the way, had a small stage for readings (laughs) and performances. Naturally. That membership list is also just like a greatest hits of American entertainers. catalog. Goes on and on, including uh, John Barrymore, Eugene O'Neill, James Cagney, who would also live in the square. The club started allowing women in in 1989, just in time for people like Angela Lansbury to join the club. Oh, great. Rue McClanahan. (laughs) There are fine entertainers still today. Uh, Ethan Hawke is a member, and also Jimmy Fallon. So not as much drama Well, they've also had a couple issues in the past few years. It's been a difficult time. They do have quite a bit of debt, and they're trying to work through it to preserve the building, to stay in the building, and to sort of revive revive the club. I think we need to join if they'll have it. (laughs) I'm up for that, because I'm sure that they also celebrate the craft of podcasting, of course. (laughs) Just next door, by the way, number 18, that corner lot... That 17-story structure was built in 1927. It was a Salvation Army women's residence for many, many decades. I remember having friends live in this building, women Mm. friends. It was sold in 2012 to be developed into super luxury condos. Hurry away from that across the street to number 22. It might be under construction if you're... passing by right now, that is the setting of the fictional family in E.B. White's classic, Stuart Little. Indeed, that's where the Littles lived. Let me take us now to the southeast corner of the park. So we are literally now directly catty-cornered from one Gramercy Park, okay? So we're Mm -hmm. at this southeast corner. And probably the most unusual building on the block. It is not a residence. It is a house of worship. This is the Friends Meeting House, the house of the Quakers, a religious faith that has a very deep history in early America. It was, it's everywhere in the bedrock of the formation of our country, from William Penn, the founder of Philadelphia, to even social reformers like Susan B. Anthony, and modern presidents like Richard Nixon were also Quakers. In 1855, the branch of the Quakers purchased this land for a brand new house of worship, which is an exceptionally weird decision, let's be honest, because their places of worship are simple and not ostentatious. And yet here we were surrounded by the homes of the wealthy and people who were very comfortable with being ostentatious. In later years, they, they would share the square with, you know, rowdy hotel life and party boys over at the Players Club. Even more unusual was the fact that the building was designed by Gamaliel King and John Kellum. Kellum, who is known for designing the A.T. Stewart department store and the Tweed Courthouse. There's nothing more ostentatious than the Tweed Hmm. Courthouse. But this building is exceptionally plain. It's a compliment to the neighborhood's quite ornamental buildings and designed to reflect the Quaker philosophies here. You know, the idea of spirituality coming from the individuals and not from false decoration that's uh, surrounding you. So the Quakers are not ostentatious, but they're also known to be quite progressive in their politics and also pacifists. During the, in the 1850s and during the Civil War, this was a reputed stop on the Underground Railroad, actually, where many escaped slaves would find comfort here and then would stay here until they were able to leave and go further north. Now, back in the 19th century, when this was created, the Quakers had actually split into two factions, the Orthodox and the Hicksites. 
Now, this was constructed to house the Orthodox. But if you walk a short distance south down to East 16th Street and a little over, a little more east, you'll find another Quaker house of worship that was built in 1860. That was built for the Hicksites. So two competing Quaker houses for two different philosophies. Well, then what happened? Because it seems like two meeting houses for a limited number of Quakers doesn't seem sustainable. Well, in the 1950s, those two factions did indeed merge back together. So as a result, the local Quaker congregation, well, they only needed one house, obviously, one place of worship. So they all moved over to the 16th Street meeting house, which is beautiful. Mm. One can see why they did that. But they sold this other building. And in 1975, it became a synagogue, the Brotherhood Synagogue. And today it caters to Gramercy Park's Jewish population. And it's still a lovely place today. And there's a a lovely little garden on the side that's a memorial. includes a beautiful 9-11 mosaic. So it's a great place to visit. So now we can just kind of jump back out into the street and head up Gramercy Park East. Right. For on the east here, it's dominated by two buildings that are some of the tallest in the neighborhood. They are two apartment buildings. Now, those are obviously not original. Um, Those are not from the 1840s, it's true. They once were exclusively townhouses around here, but those were falling out of fashion by the 1870s, and the ideal of the French flat, or the idea of multiple families living in one dwelling and sharing amenities, well, this became a fashionable, popular notion. You're talking about the apartment building. Yes, the apartment building. In 1870, the very first apartment house, or what historians can generally consider the first apartment house. The Stuyvesant Apartments is very close by. It's just a couple blocks away, and I have an entire podcast on that, episode 131. And that building was owned by Rutherford Stuyvesant, to bring the Stuyvesants back Mm -hmm. in here. But here on the square come two very unique examples of this apartment living, rather whimsical, even bizarre examples, if you look at the architecture. The oldest one is the one at 34 Gramercy Park, today called the Gramercy Apartments. It was built in 1883, and I've read in some reports that this is actually the first cooperative apartment in New York. Again, fuzzy distinctions, but at least we can say it's one of the first cooperative apartments in America. It was developed by Charles Gerlush who actually, you know, really saw the idea of French flats as welcoming to the middle classes and bringing them to the Gramercy Park era. In fact, he refused to charge more for the top floors Hmm. here, which is something that's kind of standard policy today with tall buildings. He said, quote, the moment you charge a different price for each floor, you at once change the cast of your whole building and divide it into classes, unquote. Could you imagine if a real estate developer in New York said that kind of thing today? It's interesting how these types of things are perceived. as The top stories were usually not greatly desired back at this time. Well, the top story hadn't been ever desirable back in the days before elevators, when people would have to hike all the way upstairs. But interestingly enough, the Gramercy had a private elevator, an Otis-operated elevator operated by hydraulic system with water tanks in the basement and one on the roof. 
A great many notables have swung through the Gramercy over the years, including two of our favorite actors, one of them being James Cagney, mm-hmm. who lived here at the Gramercy. And a member of the Players. And a member of the Players, and uh, the Wicked Witch herself, Margaret Hamilton, wow. also lived here at the Gramercy. Now, right next to it, at 36 Gramercy Park, it was actually built in 1905, 25 years later. But it feels a little older, partially because it's done in a gothic style. In fact, it's so gothic that there are gargoyles and cherubs on everything. And literally, men in suits of armor stand in front of the building. I mean, it almost looks like medieval times. It <laughs> could almost be kitschy. It is. But actually, I find that it's a beautiful building and it has a beautiful row of gaslights in the front of it. Amongst the well-to-do crowd that lived in this building over the years included Eugene O'Neill, John Barrymore, and, Tom, this is going to get you excited, Alfred Ringling, oh. the, the, the founder of the Ringling Brothers Circus, also lived here and had a lavish apartment. Now, the north side of the park includes mostly big apartment buildings and a giant hotel. In a way, these are a little bit less interesting. There are some townhouses that still have survived, Mm -hmm. but mostly these are 1920s era, 19-teens and 20s apartment buildings. But we're going to move past those, and Mm -hmm. we're going to instead cross Lexington and look at this giant hotel, the Gramercy Park Hotel. Now, this 17-story hotel, which opened in 1925 and was constructed in the Renaissance Revival style, it would expand a few years later along the northern side of the park. So you can see, actually, if you look at the building, if you're standing with your back to the fence, you can see the original structure, and then there's a little addition in the back of it. This was developed by Bing and Bing, the brothers Leo and Alexander, who developed all kinds of richly ornamented residential buildings in the early 20th century. A history of celebrities have passed through this hotel. Like in 1926, Humphrey Bogart got married to his first wife, Helen Mencken, on the rooftop. The woman who was not Lauren Bacall. Right. Before Lauren Bacall. Pre-Bacall. If I do Bacall. (laughs) Other regular guests included JFK, his family, uh, before his father was assigned to his diplomatic post in London. The family stayed here at the hotel. Oh, as a child. As a child. Mm -hmm. Babe Ruth spent time, a lot of time, at the bar. In the 1950s, the hotel was acquired by Herbert Weisberg, who infused it with a little bit of color, some sort of artistic, bohemian character. And he kept the rates pretty low as well. So that attracted a lot of artists throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s. These would include the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Bob Dylan would stay here. Even Debbie Harry lived here in the 1970s. You 2 stayed here in the 80s. So it sounds like this is, in my mind, this is a golden era for for the Gramercy Park Hotel. I'll bet there were some really trashed hotel rooms during this period. And some long faces at breakfast. <laughs> After Weisberg passed away in 2003, the hotel was purchased a few years later by Ian Traeger, who brought in Julian Schnabel, the artist and filmmaker, to do a a dramatic revamp of the interior. And they also sort of rebranded the place as a new den for hipsters. And And very expensive at that. It's extremely expensive. Check out the rates sometime. The hotel, by the way, has 12 keys to the park. And if you're fortunate enough to be staying there, you can be guided across the street by one of the hotel's personnel. 
And finishing off the tour, if we keep walking along the northern edge toward Park Avenue South, we come upon Calvary Church, which was designed by James Renwick in 1846 in the Gothic Revival style. We mentioned this church in the Limelight podcast. One notable parishioner at the church was born in 1863 up on West 23rd Street, little Edith Newbold Jones, and she would come to worship here at Calvary, and she would, after marrying, change her name to Edith Wharton. And I think that it's nice to end our tour, and and appropriate to end our tour, with Edith Wharton, um, giving a sort of literary stamp, a final (laughs) literary note to the tour. There, of course, the Gramercy Historic District is a little bit larger than the area that we've covered. So if you're wandering around, meander down Irving Place, of course. Go to Pete's Tavern. Mm. Um, you might want to also try 19th Street between Irving Place and 3rd Avenue, which has often been called one of the most beautiful streets in New York. It was all mostly designed by one particular architect, Frederick Sterner, who owned several of those buildings and created this very quirky character. It kind of looks like a shelf of oddly shaped books that have been randomly pressed together on a shelf. So, But it's a very beautiful block. You might want to add that too. And one final personal note to this show. When I moved to New York in 1990. Three. Was it so long ago? My first place where I lived was on Park Avenue South and 23rd Street. And so near this area, it was the first neighborhood that I really got to know in New York City. I worked at a video store called Palmer Video. And my first experience of seeing this neighborhood firsthand was doing video deliveries to the homes all around Gramercy Park. So got to meet some famous people. And I was just like scared, scrawny little kid with a, a blue vest and a bag full of Jeremy Iron movies, basically. And did you meet anybody notable? Yeah, but I met people like Julia Roberts, who lived around there, Wes Craven, Sarah Gilbert, and a whole bunch of eccentrics. So I have a personal connection with this neighborhood. It's been, it was one of the first places that I became interested in the history of New York. So thank you, Gramercy. And thank you all for listening to our tour of Gramercy Park. Greg will be posting photos, diagrams, early maps of Gramercy Park to the blog, which is BoweryBoysPodcast.com. Please also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And also, if you like what we do, please go to the blog and donate to the Bowery Boys cause. And all your donations go directly into the show to improve our sound quality, to improve our research. And we greatly appreciate those who have already donated. And we're both very excited to come back in just a few weeks to record one of our favorite shows of the whole year. As a hint, it's October and often a very spirited show. Boo. Okay. (laughs) Wrap this thing up. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.